before Steve Rogers could do this all day, before Batman asked Superman if he could bleed, before Venom got weirdly obsessed with the pancreas, there was a superhero boom in the movies of the late 80s and early 90s that paved the way for the golden age we are presently experiencing. But how did these movies prepare audiences for seeing comic book heroes on the big screen? What mistakes did they make? A topic this big is too big for one show, so Andy Nelson joined the folks from Road to Infinity and the most excellent 80s movies podcasts for a crossover event at this year's Phoenix Fan Fusion. And we are lucky that they actually turned on the recording device to share it with you this fine July hiatus. Enjoy! Thank you all for coming today. Today we have an incredible panel for you. We are going to have a live podcast recording. We have four, correct? Four? Three. Three? We are one person. Podcast. We are a single podcast. Yes. We have three podcasts represented by four people, <laughs> and they're going to talk about the history of superhero cinema. All of us love the Marvel films, the MCU, but that's not where it all started. We're going to have the opportunity to take a look back at the history of where it came from and potentially where it might be going. Or maybe I'm putting words in their mouths. <laughs> Before we get into the actual content today, I'd like to give them all an opportunity to introduce themselves. Starting with Chrissy. Oh, okay. Hi, I'm Chrissy. Uh, uh, and with me is Nathan Blackwell. Hello, everyone. We're the most excellent 80s movies podcast, uh, where we watch the movies of the 80s that we love. Question mark? Question mark? <laughs> love, uh, exclamation point. Yes. <laughs> hate, <laughs> question mark, and oh. hate, exclamation point. Exclamation point. Uh, you know, with 2019 eyes to see whether, whether or not they're uh, as wonderful as we remember. Are they? <laughs> It's a mixed bag. You'll have to listen to the podcast to find out. Yeah. <laughs> I like that book. Yes. Often surprised by uh, what I truly love now, like as an adult, and when I'm like, ew, why was I obsessed with this movie? <laughs> yeah. Duly noted. <laughs> All right. Uh, Nathan Blackwell, also the most excellent 80s movie podcast. Um, I'm a filmmaker, and so that's also part of one of the takes oh, is right. that we've. I should have she's a comedian. I'm a filmmaker, so we're yeah. lending different perspectives. But yes, his perspective is one of knowledge, and mine is one of stupidity. <laughs> <laughs> you may take twice as long because I'm, <laughs> I'm just one person. Hi, everybody. I'm Andy Nelson from the Next Reel. Uh, the Next Reel is a film podcast, and we have a uh, another podcast called the Marvel Movie Minute, and that is why I'm here because. We talk about the Marvel uh, Cinematic Universe one minute at a time. A uh, lot of minutes to discuss on our show. <laughs> and yes, it is as awesome as it sounds. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> it is very it is detailed and very nerdy, and we love it. Imagine <laughs> that one minute from the Iron Man movie that you just loved and talk about it. Yeah. Yes. And sometimes yes. it's a minute of hammering. Yeah, yeah, I know. <laughs> right. Who knew you would have such a, a such a key yeah. moment in I, the franchise to I did discuss? Love that yeah, <laughs> yeah. Kr Chrissy and I were guests on that, and we we did how many five episodes? Five, five episodes, and we never yeah. got out of the cave. Nope. <laughs> nope. Yep, you were in the cave the whole time. Mm -hmm. 
All right, I'm Kyle Olson. I'm from the Road to Infinity podcast. It's a Marvel movies podcast. We decided to watch a Marvel movie a week in anticipation of Infinity War. And then when we found out Infinity War was actually part one of two, we sort of kept going. And now we keep talking about all the Marvel stuff. Uh, what I like to do is give a little bit of perspective in terms of uh, where the comics were, what the original um, characters came from, and what the differences in the storyline, plus a little bit of background of where Hollywood was and what was going on at the time that the movies came out to give it a little bit of context, and then we get super nerdy about uh, all the Marvel movies. So we're going to be, uh, we are sort of waiting for Spider-Man, <laughs> that's our big thing, but then after that we're going to try and uh, come out with some more regular stuff uh, in between, because it's going to be ten months before the next Marvel movie after that, so we're going to do some stuff in between to, to keep Marvel fans happy. Marvel's taking a break. (laughs) (laughs) I have learned so much about the history of Marvel movies that I had no idea about by listening to that podcast. It's good stuff. So, subscribe to all of these podcasts because they are awesome, and these are awesome people you want to listen to on a regular basis. We'll wait. Including for the next hour. Yes. As we talk about the secret origins of superhero cinema. (laughs) So today, our podcasters have taken a look at history of superhero cinema and broken it into three distinct eras. They have then each chosen a movie that they feel is representative or important in that area that they would like to actually talk about in greater detail for a couple minutes. And they've also identified some that perhaps are maybe not worth an entire uh, couple minutes, but are something that we could spend a little bit of time briefly mentioning in passing as representative or important to the history and the narrative of superhero cinema. So with that, we are going to jump right in. You believe a man can fly. (laughs) Superman the movie, 1978. That's us. Yeah. So I feel like so most excellent pre eighties, right? Yeah. (laughs) Super eighties and post eighties today. We're going all over the place. That's right. Superman was really the the bar to kind of get over. Like Mm -hmm. uh, in terms of all, I felt like all the superhero movies. I felt like Superman, and then like not until like Spider Man. That or, or I guess Batman counts. Batman. <laughs> yeah, yeah. 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 Hold on there. Yeah. So there was just a few because you know a lot of people for a long time said there was like a superhero movie curse. Like yeah. a a good superhero movie couldn't be done because of the ridiculousness of the costume. Yeah, mm-hmm. and I felt like Superman was the the one in my mind that was a great movie mm-hmm. and also a great superhero movie. Right. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Well, that's so, good. when you rewatched it, what did what like stood out to you as still being great? Well, I, so so Richard Donner, I feel like he's got a good handle on making. I mean, the, you know, the, again, it's 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 very dated. The effects, you know, are are not up to what we expect. But I, he, he focuses on the people. Yeah. You know, on the humans and what they want. I feel like this is the most charismatic Superman we've ever seen. Oh, yes. Yeah, Christopher Reeve is so great. Yeah. He's just so cute and great and, like, pure. Yeah, I, I mean, him. I feel like you could you could cut out, like, 15 minutes of the movie, like, all the visual effects. At least, well, yeah. no, like, if you cut out all the visual effects from the movie where mm-hmm. he's being Superman, like, it would still be a good movie. Oh, okay. I, okay. Yeah. I get what you're saying. As in, like, there's still, you the know. The human element is still compelling. Yeah. 
what struck me when I rewatched this, and I was obsessed with these movies as a kid, not just this one, but all of the ones that came after, mm-hmm. no matter how bad they got, the <laughs> they worse got they bad. got, the mm-hmm. more I liked them. I think Superman 3 is possibly my favorite. <laughs> you fed oh, off of it I like Nuclear Man. Revisit I, that one on oh, your show. Yeah, I love it so much. The sound effect of the tankards of ooze in Superman 3 that heat up, like it's in my mind and it's just I love it so much the robot like, lady scared me so much as a kid oh um, yes. yes oh my god and gosh. bad Superman uh huh yeah I had feelings about it um, <laughs> but so and that's what struck me about rewatching this was like how horny everybody is <laughs> in 1978 Superman like that's the 70s. she asked him what color her underpants are and like <laughs> Some of the dialogue that definitely went over my head as a kid watching mm-hmm. watching as a, a, an adult, I was like, "Oh my god, calm down!" <laughs> like, yeah, we really don't get any '70s superhero movies. Like, yeah. as soon as no. superhero movies start, we're into the '80s and yep. into you know. I feel like the '80s are a better match of what like superhero mm-hmm. movies are, but the, this is the closest we get to like a '70s superhero movie. Yeah, I mean, he was on television for a long time. Uh, you know that was, he was Superman was just the TV guy for yeah. the, for the most part. Never, nobody thought he could make this big of a leap. Well, it was well, it is Superman. He can leap over tall buildings. Leap over bound. Yeah, yeah. If we're, but, if we're but, talking about evolution, like look how jacked you're expected <laughs> to be now yeah, as a superhero. So it's, a, it's a slide of Henry Cavill's Superman next to Christopher Reeve's Superman, and like Christopher Reeve refused to wear any like padding in his suit. Um, and like I mean, obviously Henry Cavill has to be yeah. has some padding somewhere. Uh, but <laughs> like we've all seen Henry Cavill, like that man is jacked. Like who knew that you could have that many abs? Yeah, it's and, beyond a six pack. And of course, Christopher Reeves looks like a normal person. Yes. But again, like I'll never look that good. It's I mean, still, no, he looks great. Like, he looks like, very he strong. He still looks like a physically fit person. But now, like the expectation. Is that they look like they've been attacked by like a swarm of bees and they're swollen everywhere. <laughs> <laughs> well, in, in terms of the comics, I don't want to get too far off of it because I know we're, we're sticking to movies, but there was a, a big debate after sort of Superman came out is that is it Clark Kent pretending to be Superman or is he always Superman pretending to be Clark Kent? Mm-hmm. So at this point, he's Clark Kent. He's a human, he's, nor- he's a guy, and he can also do this stuff. Mm-hmm. By the time we get to where we have Man of Steel, it's the opposite. Yeah. He's an yeah, alien, right, right. and they emphasize mm-hmm. the alienness of him and that he's putting on a suit like to, pretending to be a human being. Mm-hmm. I think that's a very different feeling in the movies because there's a lot of heart in Superman 78 and that there mm-hmm. really yeah. isn't in Ye- Man of yeah. Steel. Yeah, yeah. Go, go well, ahead. and also I think that you know a big thing about it is they that they made Superman for everybody. It wasn't yeah. just a yeah. kids yeah. a kids movie. And the TV shows, like I mean, I think superhero stories really were largely relegated to you know kids and comics, and they weren't thought of as something for the whole family. And so I think that's something that they really did with. 1978 Superman is they said it's it's a story for everybody, yeah. and it's yeah. a really interesting story, mm-hmm. and it's about real estate. Yeah. <laughs> it's about real estate. <laughs> but, and they made it's him look like normal. It's not yeah. a power suit. It's yeah. like Luthor trying to get yeah. land. You know? right. And like you're talking yeah. about the adult content, too. Like it's, it's really a, a pretty adult story in terms of that, even mm-hmm. though we still see Superman saving people and lifting a helicopter. Right, and, right, right. Which is an interesting transition to the, the next movie that we have on the list here, <laughs> uh, Flash Gordon, which is very much not an everyman kind of story, much more of a sci-fi. And we have 
Road to Infinity Wars. Yeah, stuff. that's me. So, all right, to talk about Flash Gordon, we have to go back in time a little bit to talk about Dino De Laurentiis. Now, Dino De Laurentiis was an Italian producer who got super powerful in Hollywood. Uh, at this point, he had produced Barbarella and Serpico and Death Wish. He was like uh, box office Midas at this point, so he could kind of do what he wanted. So... Uh, in 19, I think about 1974, I couldn't find the exact date, he had a meeting with a young filmmaker who had made a movie, and the guy was super excited about making a Flash Gordon movie, had all these great ideas, and the other just said, you've made one teen comedy, why should I ever listen to you, and just sent him on his way. So that guy took his ideas, revamped them a little bit, and created Star Wars. <laughs> so uh, De Laurentiis was stinging from this so that he had a chance because if you watch any of the Flash Gordon serials and you watch Star Wars, you can see there is a very clear line of like the adventure and like what's next and what's next, like the serialization of it. So he wanted his own Star Wars. So I know this is about superhero cinema, but Star Wars casts a long uh, shadow over all of this stuff because everyone was chasing Star Wars. Everyone wanted to have that thing that, that kids and adults and everyone loved. Uh, so he wanted to make Flash Gordon his Star Wars. So he put together this, uh, this thing. And now Flash Gordon was not really that well-known of a property. So it's not like Superman where, like, you can go to Indonesia and there's kids running around in a Superman outfit. Like, Flash Gordon was, at this point, was a comic strip. That's what everyone knew it as. Uh, so to, it was sort of, like, not the, the thing you would think would, would reach everyone. And, and it didn't. Uh, <laughs> so I've never seen it. The, yeah. the, the story behind the scenes of this was, is just is – we could do a whole hour just about all the, the machinations that happened behind the scene. But, like, the, uh, some of the highlights I found were um, they, they got a real smart script, and the other guys went, no, I, I, want it, I want it ridiculous. I want it comic booky. So he hired a guy who worked on Batman 66, like the, the Adam oh, West yeah. Batman, and that's what he wanted. Mm. And that the guy then because you know has barely spoken English, that had to be translated by someone into Italian. And then once it was approved, it had to be translated back into English, which explains a lot when you watch the movie because almost nothing wow. makes sense. Um, they, so when they, they shot it in, mostly in Italy with an Italian crew who none of them spoke English, so the director could talk to the cast and the cast director, and no one could talk to the crew at all. They had to have translators for everything. Uh, <laughs> but it, through it all, the thing that amazed me most watching it again, especially in high definition, is the costumes are amazing. Yay. Like, they went all out. Like, I was... I was I had to pause on like you know my, my HD screen. Yeah, that's a humble brag. Um, <laughs> and because like because you see like uh, Ming's uh, like collar and his his chest plate are all covered uh, and they're all shiny. And I realized they're they're made up of thousands of beads. Like every, they they stitch together every single one of these things. There's no like it, you in the the picture we're showing on there. It's very much like a spandex looking thing. But inside every little piece is all hand stitched. There must have been a, a hundred Italian sewers out there just frantically working on all these costumes. Um, it's terrible. Like, I mean, it's like you watch it again and it's, it's, it makes no sense at all. Mostly because this is like the personification of, of white privilege. Like, yeah. uh, their Flash Gordon is such a lunk. He is like, he is, there's nothing to it. He has no charisma, no charm, no military ability. Like, they, he shows up and they're all like, you need to lead a revolution. Why? Like he has, like, he's, he's, not, even, he's not star. smarter. He's not faster. He's not smarter. He's just the blonde-haired, blue-eyed white guy that showed up. And so they're like, "Well, you're clearly you're the guy." Yeah. <laughs> at, le at least, like in the serial, he was like 
a pilot yes. and he was like and a, a mi- yeah like a military hero yeah. and then he had a scientist friend and a, like a reporter girlfriend and they were like a team yeah. you know and they yeah. knew what they were doing and then we have like a football player yeah. who seems not, like he's and lost. Not even a great one like he's not supposed to be Joe Montana like right. he's like I mean he's like he's like third string I mean like <laughs> there's, there's he, really gets, he gets to fly it. in his own plane he's like a private <laughs> well, jet. Still, yeah, well, he's still in the NFL so he still gets perks so yeah he's not he's not um, you know like a, a kicker um, but <laughs> but it's but it's sports it's, ball reference yeah I, yeah so I, it, Come to me for the sports ball references. I there's our sports day. reference for the day. <laughs> yeah, no, no, I have, I have no idea what I'm talking about. I say third string just because I've heard someone say it. Uh, but you can see a lot of where it came to. Like, did anyone take any inspiration from this? Not really. Uh, but you can see the the level of, of, of craftsmanship in terms of like they built real sets. Like, mm-hmm. as opposed to now, like you watch episode one and it's like it's them walking on green screens and you can tell the difference between them mm-hmm. them running down a hallway in, in Flash Gordon where they built a real hallway and they built a you know a a giant disc for them to fight on top of that apparently was so newly finished that when the actors fall, fell on it, they had to stop production to get the silver paint off of them. It was still wet. Uh, oh but the, the, the production design, um, you can see, like, I, I was looking at some of the characters, and they look like characters that come, come out of Canto Bite, Blight? Blight? Canto Bite. Bite. Yeah. Canto Bite uh, from uh, Last Jedi, or uh, the Sovereign from Guardians of the Galaxy 2. It's that same sort of completely ridiculous, over-the-top, overly-dressed, rich, you know, a-holes uh, surrounding them all. It's, 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 it's clear that uh, they had, the people had watched it, too. But, boy, yeah, it's, it was such a I mean, like, John Carter, which doesn't get a lot of love, did this story so much better. <laughs> and, yeah, this is one because it's got two great Queen songs in it. It sort of endures. But, yeah. It's- so, so would you say that um, maybe, like, a theme of these early uh, superhero movies is that they're still kind of grasping on how to adapt a comic book? Yeah, I would definitely say. I mean, that they they found with Superman, they they sort of went for casting Christopher Reeve. I think was the mm-hmm. best thing they ever did because mm-hmm. he has so much natural charisma, and he's and you just like him. Like nobody likes Flash. Like, yeah, I know yeah. it's the Sam Jones who who was, it was first they, admitted it was not his finest performance yeah. ever. But they picked him from the oh, this is another piece of trivia that I forgot about. So they couldn't find anybody to be Flash. They went to Kurt Russell. Kurt Russell looked read the script and went, yeah, no. <laughs> <laughs> Kurt Russell, he's like, he went off to do the thing. So I think he made a better career choice. Yeah. They went to an Arnold Schwarzenegger audition for it, and no one could understand what he was saying. So like, no. So they got Sam Jones off of the dating game. He was a contestant, <laughs> and they were watching it on TV. They're like, wow. that's my guy. That's as close to my offensive Italian that accent. Was that was that your that's Dino? That's my Dino. Yeah. That's the, so I, th- I think it came down to a lot of it was casting. So it's mm-hmm. like, if you if they had had Christopher Reeve playing Flash Gordon, mm-hmm. it might have been a very different movie. Yeah, but it's... It sounds, so- like, the, it sounds like the important thing with this one was the uh, the, the costuming. Mm-hmm. So True. moving on, because we've oh, got yes, yes, yeah. a bunch more films. Ah, <laughs> Let's talk for a moment briefly about Swamp Thing, and then uh, we can move on to uh, Supergirl. You know, I just think the Swamp Thing, um, I think it fits in exactly with what we were just saying and that they were still trying to figure out how to adapt these comic books, mm-hmm. these properties. I mean, they had Wes Craven directing it and they tried to go a little bit with his horror route and everything, but it really, I don't know, it, it, it's an interesting film to revisit. I, I rewatched it for this, and uh, it, uh, but it, it really is lacking. Yeah. It's not a great film, and it's not, I mean, I think if they had, I, I'm not as familiar with uh, Swamp Thing other than I think a couple, um, a couple uh, issues of it, but it's, I feel like if they let Wes Craven really go the horror route, they could have done something interesting with it, but I think that 
it just fails on that part otherwise. I think there's is a place that thing for it. Not like a like a monster in the like Frankenstein Wolfman. At this point, pretty much. Yes. Like okay. this is before or, Alice. Well, that. right about the time Alan Moore took yeah. over the comic and he made him into like a, a plant elemental, and so he became really spiritual and stuff, and, and super popular. And Alan Moore. He found yeah. Jesus. <laughs> no idea. <laughs> uh, more like he became Jesus. But um, the I, I think that there is a place. For a low-budget superhero movie, though, I kind of wish that every superhero movie wasn't 100 million dollars. Like this yeah. was this was a low-budget nothing kind of thing. I think for not necessarily for Swamp Thing, but for these characters, you can make a dirty 10 million dollar movie and have it be great. I wish they would sort of do that now. Mm-hmm. So, how did we get from Swamp Thing to uh, Supergirl <laughs> and uh, things like Howard the Duck? <laughs> oh, Howard. Oh, Howard. Because <laughs> we have those briefly mentioned as, yeah. uh, well, we're going to spend a little bit of time with Howard. If we just done. trusted George yeah. Lucas and let him do whatever he wants. Oh, yeah, yeah, this right. was at the height of, like, whatever George wanted, George got, and that's what he wanted. <laughs> yeah, Howard the Duck was, I mean, well, and this is an interesting one because it actually had been around for quite a while. I mean, George Lucas, you know, found the comic shortly after he did American Graffiti and he talked to Willard Hike and uh, Gloria Katz who he who wrote that with him and and was like oh this would be a fun little thing to make and over the next uh, you know 10 years or so they they kind of came up with a plan and and they made this kind of mess of a movie and <laughs> what's interesting is that they actually initially wanted to do it animated and I think if maybe they had and if maybe they had stuck with kind of the character a little closer it would have been better but they had a deal with Universal and Universal required it to be a live action movie that they made and George Lucas was like oh I've got this special effects company we'll do this duck and it'll be great and they spent a lot of time trying to get this duck right, and they never did. And it just was this disastrous thing, and nobody ever bought into this duck. It's just a terrible costume from beginning to end, and it's a terrible script. <laughs> and the problem is, I mean, and interestingly, I thought this movie was actually a bomb. It actually barely made its money back huh. in the box office, which uh, was a little bit of a surprise. But um, they, um, the writers, they they didn't even, and I think this goes to kind of what we were saying. This whole idea of trying to uh, figure out what how they're going to translate a a, a comic book property into a film. A hike and Katz's first inclination with it was to kind of remove like all the kind of rude and obnoxious stuff that kind of makes Howard the Duck who he is, mm-hmm. and also they their version of it. Uh, this is what Gloria Katz said. She said it's a film about a duck from outer space. It's not supposed to be an existential experience. We're supposed to have fun with this concept, but for some reason reviewers weren't able to get over that problem. <laughs> Blaming it on everyone else. Um, Gerber, uh, Steve Gerber, is the one who came up with the character. And he said his view of the the character is that it's it's a kind of this this uh, cosmic he calls it this is no joke there it is the cosmic giggle the funniest gag in the universe that life's most serious moments and most incredibly dumb moments are often distinguishable only by a momentary point of view anyone who doesn't believe this probably cannot enjoy reading the Howard the Duck his his point of view on kind of the absurdity of it all is kind of what makes Howard the Duck what Howard the Duck is and I don't think Hike and Cats ever figured that out and that I think is the biggest problem with it plus that awful costume yeah so and you're talking about adult content in Superman the adult content in this is so creepy oh, my oh god. god it's like you know no. the the, yeah. the 80s what they could get away with in PG movies sometimes <laughs> you know let's let's make this let's paint this lady white and make her look like a duck and put her in a bathtub and we can have a nude scene now it's like yeah. what 
Nope. Oh, yeah. terrible movie. Oh. That's why we're all so well-adjusted now as adults. <laughs> Not to mention the uh, the animal love that we get with uh, right? Leah Thompson <laughs> and Howard. Yeah. yeah. Marvel's first uh, film and, uh, yeah, a bit of a disaster right out of the gate. But, you know, memorable theme song. So. <laughs> oh. I was tempted to bring it, in the, right? uh, but I, I, I couldn't find it on iTunes. So oh, yes. like, well, but, but you wouldn't want to. Uh, no, I could probably find it on YouTube, but yeah, again, I wouldn't want to. <laughs> no. No. So how, how does that compare to some of like the darker themes that you see in uh, the 1989 Punisher? Or even Batman, which... Yeah, yeah. well, yeah. Numbers. Punisher is, is interesting because it's it's the first one that's really true to the character. I mean, like they're afraid of they're afraid of the well, they were afraid of the costume, <laughs> so it wasn't like you know. Mm-hmm. He, so he never wears the skull in the whole thing. But you know, Dolph Lundgren I thought did a pretty decent job as being like. But basically, they made Death Wish again. Well, well it's like yeah, if the Punisher doesn't have a costume, then he's just like a really angry dude, right? Like, yeah. With a guy, well, angry white guy with a gun. I know that always goes well. Oh, more and, of those stories, yeah, I know. please. <laughs> and that was another dark one. But then they also were like, "Oh, but it's a comic book, so we still have to have kids." And then they have, they have the whole like rescue the kids story. And the like, what is this he happening? Has to be a hero. Meanwhile, the kids are like, "Leave us out of this." We yeah, don't. we like we don't want to be in your I think terrible it, it, it movie. It was PG thirteen. Yeah. It? Yeah, but yeah. it's like yeah, saving these kids, and then like, oh, I don't it's know. It's just yeah. groping for an audience. Like, they, yeah. there's not a built-in comic book movie audience yet, and so they're taking like properties that were cheap but like adult themed, and trying yeah. to then it's like, oh, it's a comic book. We'll give it to kids. Well, or they're making like themes really dumb. Yeah. Well, and I think the the Punisher is an example where they they really took Dolph Lundgren as the property mm. and yeah, said, here's an action star. Mm-hmm. Let's find a comic book that we can kind of inject into his type of movie and that's really all they did with that one yeah. unlike Batman yeah. uh, which came out uh, same year yeah. and this is one where it had been kind of a the, the story had always been kind of dark but because of kind of the the really campy uh, TV show from the 60s and some of the the campier comic book storylines and everything it had kind of gotten lost and Batman was a bit of a joke and it took uh, producers Michael Uslan and Benjamin Melnicker to they actually bought the rights to it in 1979 and then it took them 10 years to actually get somebody interested in making a darker comic story. I think people were still going, oh, but we want it to be like Superman. We want it to be bright. It's for the kids and everything. And they finally got people to bite into this thing with this this darker presence of this this dark character. And I think getting Tim Burton at the helm of it and Michael Keaton, as yes. much as it was a controversial at the time, um, you know, Batmania was crazy in 1989, but people were still arguing that Michael Keaton was a terrible choice. You know, he's this comedian. He's this guy he's who Beetlejuice. just played Beetlejuice. Yeah. Exactly. Nobody wanted to see him in the movie. But then you release it. And, I mean, this movie um, became the number one uh uh, box office opener for its opening weekend. It was the fastest film to earn $100 million in just 11 days. Oh, yeah. Ah, the good old days. I still remember it being <laughs> oh, yes. a phenomenon. Yeah, like, it, was, it, 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 was just, it was huge. It, it was. was. Yeah. And it was like Batman summer. Like yes. everything. Oh, yes. oh yeah. They all had the shirts summer. and we got the cups from McDonald's. Yeah. I mean, yeah. It, it, was, it was a media blitz. I it was. So still good. have my movie stub from it. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> oh. That's so sweet. He has a framed on his wall. But it's like Tim Burton and Michael Keaton both have that like dark playfulness, right? Mm-hmm. Where they can yeah. do something that's really like creepy and so dark and it's like meaning and origins, but it's still playful and like joyful and in its oddity amusing. Mm. Like they so I think they were a great team. 
Yeah, absolutely. And obviously they had worked together before with Beetlejuice, so they already had that chemistry. Mm -hmm. And then they brought it again to uh, Batman Returns, regardless of what you think of it, they mm -hmm. still were they still had their their partnership mm -hmm. and their chemistry yeah. and everything. Yeah. And, and so it was a good team. What I think is funny, this is just a side note, um, in the process of trying to get this film made, oh, yes. uh, Uslan and Melliker actually had a lot of different directors and people attached. And at one point they were talking to Ivan Reitman to direct it, who wanted Bill Murray to be Batman and Eddie Murphy to play Robin. Oh, my so, God. Yeah. That got pretty far, Again, too. <laughs> yeah, falling back into the campy territory. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> That would have been a very different movie. Yeah. Oh, I can't even imagine what that like would have looked like. the most casual Batman and the most, like, high-energy <laughs> Robin. <laughs> yeah, this really, I mean, Batman obviously has been around since, you know, for 75 years or more at this point. Uh, but he had been he had been a joke for four. Now, to bring him in serious, now he is sort of like a a thumbprint on the media landscape. Yeah. I mean, yeah. like, it's always, the, the question is always, who is Batman now? I mean, like, we're, as we're recording this, we're between Batman. There's there's oh. sort of a new Batman that they say is coming. Robert Pattinson. Yeah, Robert Pattinson, yeah. that's right. So, but that's that's news. Like, when is that movie coming out? Nobody knows, but we're already talking yeah, about who the next Batman is. People yeah, right. are already starting their own new letter-writing campaign to <laughs> oust him. <laughs> exactly, yes. They're already stirring it up and hasn't even been officially announced. Uh, Some but, things never change. So, rewind watch this, it's clear that Tim Burton is not a comic book fan. <laughs> uh, because, And he's even said, he's, he's gone on record saying, I've never read a comic book story in my life. I don't do a Tim Burton impression, sorry. Uh, uh, but uh, it, Batman in the movie is a straight up murderer. Like, yeah. there's that whole question of, like, does Batman kill? Well, he has this machine guns and his car, <laughs> and he drives into a building and drops a bomb. So, yeah, he straight up murders dudes in this, and, like, you know, 10-year-old me watching going, like, oh, it's just Batman. This is great. But now you watch right. it with these mm. eyes and go, oh, <laughs> like he's like the Punisher. He's, yep. he's killing really? people. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. But they were really bad people. They were bad people, yeah. so it's okay. When they're in, a, when they're in a, you know, thug costumes, it's yeah. okay. Exactly. But exactly. even though it diverged from the source in mm -hmm. quite a number of ways, it definitely, because of its success, had a, a huge impact over you know, the, the next era of comic book films. Yes, absolutely. It, it, Everything else that came after it is, as you all put it, in the shadow of the bat. Yeah, That's so right. before they were just kind of groping for cheap properties. It's like Superman was big, but there weren't a lot of replicators. But once Batman came out and became massive, then everyone was trying to make their Batman. Now, yeah. finally, there was now an audience for these comic book movies. And they looked for that as the template because yeah. things are about to get dark. <laughs> cinematically, <Yep. laughs> like there's a literally yeah, like, and figure. That's right, because Ninja Turtles is our <laughs> yeah. Ninja and it's, one of the first well, that's right. And so most of the scenes take place at night in the dark, just like in Batman. Literally dark. Where the but sun yes. never shines in Gotham. But it was a Jim uh, a Jim Henson one, and uh, you know this is one where I think they were trying to figure out how dark do we go with these mm -hmm. comic yeah. book movies because they they kind of. The comics arguably were a little darker. Yeah, I was a fan really, of, the, of yes. them, and oh, yes. there really was light. a lot of blood. It was definitely lethal, yeah. for sure. <laughs> right. A very different change. Because that was a reflection off of the Daredevil comics, which were the popular time. They were sort of a reflection of that, mm -hmm. and then they, they sort of then they became you know radical dude. So then how did we get from that to a movie like uh, The Rocketeer in 91? Okay, The Rocketeer is on my thing because it's one of my favorite movies of all time. And it, it, it so does not belong anywhere <laughs> where, exactly where it is. So it's, it's a, it, I think it's a terrific movie that like, completely um, uh, gets misunderstood a lot. So now this, this is my gimmick. So 
to, to talk about the Rocketeer, 1991, when you talk about Disney and, and coming out of the Asian 90s, we're, they were ice cold. Like, we think of Disney now as the predominant media company. Everything. They own Star Wars. The, they are the hottest thing. Whatever they put out, even if it's terrible, they're going to make a th- – like, Dumbo, actually, I have not seen some. Uh, Dumbo comes out. Gets lukewarm receptions, still makes a hundred million dollars. Mm-hmm. Like it, it's it's there. They're such a cultural juggernaut, but that was not the case in the late eighties into the nineties. They could not find a hit to save their lives. They were struggling. With uh, live I, action, live action, oh, especially live action. Yeah. So uh, little, well, Little Mermaid had just come out, so their their animation studio had been shut down. Uh, they came out with Little Mermaid. It took a long shot, and it became huge, and suddenly they could make animated movies again, and so that was thing. But this was the time that they were animating themselves, and so it was every two or usually three years before another one coming out. So Beauty and the Beast was still on the horizon. Like, it wasn't even, like, they were barely talking about it. So they had Little Mermaid, and then their, if you look through their slate of live-action movies from, like, 75 to, to 91, you'll be shocked because you've never heard of any of those movies. I mean, they, Disney has buried them because they were were huge disasters. They were, but they were consistently putting out two live-action movies a year, and nobody was going to them. Uh, so, and, and this is also the time that uh, for Euro Disney was sucking all the money out of their pockets too. So they finally got a hit, and it was called "Honey, I Shrunk the Kids," Yay. and it was not only was it a legitimately great movie, but it was a success for them, and they had no idea what to do. Like they, we've never had a live-action <laughs> success in so long, We'd, and so they they were trying to figure out how to capitalize on it. They've, and, and they still really didn't. They they tried to sequel and everything else and it's been awful but we got a remake coming out soon and a remake is coming yeah um i think for the disney plus i think that's where it's going uh, well we'll see um so they went all right so that guy who directed that movie clearly knows what he's doing so let's let him do what he wants to do and what he wanted to do was an adaptation of one of his favorite comic books and that was the rocketeer and so they they sort of went okay if you think that'll do it so he made a brilliant 1930s action movie right up there with 1999's the mummy and uh, raiders of the lost ark it fits right into that thing and audiences did not want that at all like not from disney especially they wanted dark that's right because this that, that's the thing is this is the right movie at the wrong time mm-hmm. coming in the shadow of the bat coming after ninja turtles like this was this did not find its audience it was a huge bomb which is a, a, it's heartbreaking because it's such a brilliant funny sweet movie and the effects still hold up i mean like we're talking about the 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 some of the effects in superman are laughably bad at this point even you know but the, the flying stuff still works and mm-hmm. even in rocketeer the flying stuff still works you can see how they did a lot of it i but, believed a man could fly yes <laughs> yeah and, and and still they can you know 10 uh, 10 plus years later i still mm-hmm. believe he can fly uh, you should even mount a campaign to bring this movie back i really think it is status. if they drop this now i think it would be huge mm-hmm. yeah. but what interesting so so these things all you know so come back around so this movie is a disaster it gets buried it gets put away disney it disacknowledges its existence and then the marvel cinematic universe shows up and they suddenly have they like oh yeah captain america stories and they, we need like a world war ii action thing and they call up the director joe johnson they call up the director of the rocketeer and said hey you know how to do this and he does and he makes captain america the first avenger and it's brilliant and everybody loves it and i was like this is the same thing <laughs> like he did it again like like if you like this go watch the rocketeer you're gonna love it 
No I wonder if it would have done well if it had been released 10 years earlier in the Superman era I think before so. the darkness kind yeah. of took over. I mean, over. even though the effects probably would have been a lot cruder, I think that oh, it's but, that because yeah. this is it's it's so it's bright and it's sunny and he's he's a reluctant he's a terrible at his job. I mean, like he's as a hero, he does not know what he's doing. He makes mistakes all the way along, which coming off of Batman, which is what everyone is, he is so self-assured and never mm-hmm. never questions up and, and always knows what he's doing. The Rocketeer, like the picture we have up here is him flying along. That picture is when he salutes a kid that he's flying next to and shuts off his rocket pack and yep. plummets to Earth and barely gets it turned back on again and saves himself. Oops. Like it happens all through the movie. Mm-hmm. He makes these rookie mistakes because he doesn't know what he's doing. So he's not uh, he's not Indiana Jones. He's not Bruce Wayne. Uh, he's just a guy trying to figure this stuff out, and that's what makes it great. He's like Iron Man, uh, Tony trying to figure out the Mark II. Yeah, yeah. For yeah. The whole a, movie. In, the, in the minutes that I watched mm-hmm. with you, for that's exactly what it is. Like that period of time, him figuring it out. That's the whole movie. I, I just love it. And it seems pretty uh, different from the the darkness of, of the Batman, which is what the audience wanted. <laughs> which is what the audience wanted, and what some of the rest of of the '90s brought us. It was this mix of weird and wacky and, and bright and dark, and even some animated films, including Batman Mask of the Phantasm. Yeah, that, after the success of Batman, then comes Batman the Animated Series, then they decide to make a movie of that, uh, which is another huge flop. Like, <laughs> and, and, and once again, and it, and it so does not deserve it, Mask of the Phantasm is a brilliant animated movie, and it's such a great piece of the, the Batman the Animated Series, uh, and it just did not find an audience. And now I think it's, it's beloved. But at the time, you like, you, did you go see it when it was out? No, not until yeah, video, so, yeah. yeah so and I was a kid went, who loved Batman. Right, so. it came and went so fast. Well, yeah. I, and I think Batman, by this point, I think they missed their, their mark because it was the live-action Batman was cool. And yes. now it was animated. All of a sudden, it was like, oh, that's for kids now? I'm not going to watch it because I'm already old enough to watch this stuff where it's live-action. Yeah. Sounds like the studios really couldn't figure out what they were really looking for. I mean, then you have things like The Mask. And then you have things like The Crow, which are two very different movies um, that yeah. have very different audiences and very different feel uh, and, and styles to them. And released in the same year. Yeah. So we, we've got like indie comics now, like, you know, like Vertigo and like mm-hmm. these darker adult comics like The Crow. Yeah. Which um, I just rewatched this morning. Uh, it, this was one of those movies that I was obsessed with, like when yes. you're a teenager. Oh my god! This oh, yeah. is a, so oh, much like teenage uh-huh. angst just running through this movie. Oh yes, yeah. I was 13 when this movie came out, and I was I was all about it. Oh, yeah, yes. like it's dark, it's mysterious. He's got creepy black makeup. Like the story of the movie itself is tragic. There's the cure on the soundtrack. Yeah, like, yeah. if you want to like revisit your youth, this is like a good <laughs> movie for that mm-hmm. because. Of that angsty time, but that also kind of like a it kind of there's not just one type of comic book movie, you know, like comics, it's like a diverse medium, and there's not just Superman, there's like this kind of stuff, and I feel like this, even though it wasn't like a huge hit, and it was you know obviously the tragedy of of um Jason Lee Brandon, Brandon Lee Brandon. Brandon. Yeah. Brandon's dead too <laughs> Brandon Lee um Brandon Lee's death um which kind of adds to the angst and the sorrow to the whole experience. Well, it does because like everybody knew that story before yeah. the movie came out, oh, yeah. right? Yeah. So I had no idea that this was based on a comic book or or what any of the source material was. It was just like a s- slightly gothic, dark, mm-hmm. creepy movie with 
you know, that gave me an excuse to wear black vinyl and, right? and a, a lot of <laughs> eyeliner, uh, you know. But yeah, I could see like the bad version of this would be someone saying it's a comic book and comic book movies should be like this. Mm-hmm. Yes. Whereas like there's, again, so many different uh, types of stories yes. in comics and that I, you really have to kind of create and mold it around that specific because he's like a Punisher. That's what yeah. he is. Like he's a Punisher from beyond the grave. Um, but as like as dated as I feared this movie would be, and as dated as it truly is, like it's still <laughs> it's so, so 90s. watchable. Oh yes, but yeah. it's so watchable. It's such and a it's, slice of the nineties. Like it's it, everything about it is is exactly right for what it exactly is. Exactly right. And the mm-hmm. casting, like we talked about earlier, like the yes. casting of Brandon Lee is like he has that perfect like sensitivity beyond the dark exterior which if you're 13 you're like yeah that's what I need I need some sensitivity on the inside but some creepy darkness and long greasy hair on the outside inside Uh you know and then still manifest I can save him can you imagine like Keanu Reeves doing this I, mean, I sure can and I will, Kyle. <laughs> I can. Calm down, Chris. Right Calm down. No. Should we get a letter writing campaign for this coming <laughs> right. up? I think, a lot, like we were talking about, though, it really comes down to the lead. Yeah. I mean, that, especially for these, like what we have, almost everything we have is a singular hero. Yeah. There's, they, they, at this point, they were not talking about teams or any of that stuff, and it comes down to that guy. And Brandon Lee was the guy. Mm-hmm. Like he was mm-hmm. perfect in that role. The and lead and the adaptation, like the people who actually translated, I think, are mm-hmm. understand the meat of what they're trying to do with mm-hmm. the story. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, and then then the you know, like a, a 90s kid unattended in fishnets and combat boots skating around <laughs> on the rainy streets of the city is like, yeah, I'm like I want to be her. Yeah. I want to be best friends with the crow and just skate around and have Ernie Hudson buy me Chinese food. But I think it shows it too because it's it's a strong concept of like the revenge stuff too and they have never been able to to replicate it. They've oh, tried. No, the Crow 2 is terrible. Oh, that's awful. And it was a TV series. And it was a TV series, yeah. and it was, they've, they've made three or four different mm-hmm. direct video movies, too. I think David Boreanaz was in one, was in one of them. What? Yes. He's a, he's a villain, I think. Isn't he the bad He's not the Crow. He's the. I don't remember, but yeah, but they're, they are terrible. When you get to uh, most awful '90s podcast, when mm-hmm. you guys do the next one, then yeah, <laughs> that's a mess, the yeah. The but yeah, but, <laughs> but it shows the the power of it. like having it's it's that 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 magical thing of like uh, Stephen Norrington and 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 Ernie Hudson too, which who had yeah. who, who after Brandon couldn't finish his scenes had had a, his part got a lot bigger, and so he had to carry a lot of the movie too. Yeah. They're all fantastic in that movie. It mm-hmm. just comes together in a really weird way. And Biling so, is insane. <laughs> it sounds like there's a there's a mix of the, the talent of the people who are involved, but also understanding the source material Absolutely. and understanding the audience. And it sounds like sometimes they got it, mm-hmm. and the yeah. studios understood what they were doing, and sometimes mm-hmm. they didn't. <laughs> I, I forgot oh. the shadow yeah. even oh. existed. Yes, oh yeah. my gosh, yeah. Alec Baldwin as the, the shadow. <laughs> and I this think is, he even acknowledges that was a mistake. Oh, Jesus. I could, I could uh-huh. talk for so, the rest of the podcast. I'm, I'm so glad we I'm have going a, to. a much we'll better version of that. that. There are lots <laughs> uh-huh. of feels there. Oh, and then. Yeah. And, What's next? Oh, yes, there we go. Mm-hmm. Oh yes, so Tank good. Girl. Oh, I love Tank Girl so much. So uh, instead of like talking about the um, 
uh, the, the sort of where we're at in terms of the studio and behind the scenes stuff. Um, let's talk about women for once because Yay! like since Supergirl came out and was a terrible movie, then Hollywood said, well, then clearly women can't be heroes. And so then, and they have, and so for the rest of this time, you haven't, you've not seen one woman up on it's the screen. It's proven. Uh, so this one, they, they finally, they had, they found this really weird independent comic. Like, once again, no Marvel, no DC. This is all on its own. Tank Girl. Uh, and then do it. And so this is a movie directed by a woman. This is the, her, the production designer was a woman, uh, female lead. Uh, like it is, it is girl power before girl power. I think we're actually, right about and, the time, yeah, I say 95. That's, that's, and, all the, and all the dudes are kangaroos. And all the dudes are kangaroos. Yes, this is the movie <laughs> where Lori Petty has sex with a mutant kangaroo. Yeah. Like, how did this, how is this not a gigantic hit? I don't understand. Ice T is in this movie as a mutant kangaroo. Yeah. Like, even even so, people have tried to come after him about that. Like seeing it, he's like he's like, man, I got paid so much for that movie. He's like he's like, I'm not ashamed of it at all. Like he is proud of the work he did. Malcolm McDowell was right after Star Trek Generations as he as cast him as the villain. It was it was unbelievable. So uh, Rachel Talalay is the one who uh, directed it. She uh, had worked for John Waters. So if you watch John Waters movies and then you watch this, you can kind of see. Oh yeah, clearly it's the same aesthetic. Um, she's gone on to direct episodes of Doctor Who. Uh, Heaven Sent and Hellbent, she directed Twice Upon a Time. Uh, the direction designer was Catherine Hardwick, who uh, has directed Lords of Dogtown in 13. Mm-hmm. Uh, Lori Petty uh, is, is amazing. She, she was coming off of League of Their Own and Free Willy. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I've actually met, so, I, so how much do I love this movie? I have one poster at my house, one movie poster hanging up, and it is Tank Girl. <laughs> and it is signed wow. by Lori Petty. No wow. way! It is my pride and joy. Um, what Naomi Watts is also in this movie as her first performance. She uh, unfortunately does not like to talk about it. <laughs> but so, but the, coming into this, there it, it, I know it comes out now, and it's it's sort of seen as this weird offbeat thing. But going into it, everybody was really really excited about what it could be. So much so that they went to Stan Winston to create the Rippers, the mutant kangaroos. And Stan Winston was white hot at this time. He was doing Jurassic Park. He did Terminator. He did Predator. All these designs, and he said. I want to make the mutant kangaroos for this. And they're like, we're a tiny little movie that's going to shoot in Australia. Like, we have no money. And he said, all right, I'll do it for half. And so he, like, basically slashed. He had no reason to, but he wanted to do it so badly. He slashed his budget, made the costumes for it, and they are still on display in his museum. He asked for them to be put right next to the Predator and the Alien. Like, he was so proud of it. Um, it's... It's terrible in terms because mostly because um, the studio wanted a very traditional story and Tank Girl is not a traditional mm-hmm. story at all. I don't know how they looked at the script of mutant kangaroos and you know uh, and like there's even one the deleted scene with a, a, a room of dildos and they like went no Alice has to go and they tried to, and they tried they took it from the director and tried to cut it into a linear direct storyline. And, and also slash the budget at the same time. And it just, it, it really does not hold it. But you can see the spirit still living on in it. It has such a great heart, and it's funny, and it's weird, and it's exciting. Uh, they took all the stuff they couldn't do and embraced it. There was a major action sequence going to happen with, like, there's tanks and there's jets all flying around doing all of these things. Um, and they, the studio said, yeah, we're not going to pay for any of that. So they went to an animation studio, and they had the animation studio create the entire sequence. So the movie's going along, and all of a sudden it just switches, and it's this brilliant 
graffiti pop art animation battle scene that happens, and then they like at the end they just all they all walk out of it like yeah that's that's what just happened. That's what happened. It's so awesome, and and so I, I called it the awesome apocalypse because this is like post apocalyptic, but everyone thinks everything is cool and everything's awesome, and you can see that stuff in like Sunset Overdrive and Rage Two and Far Cry New Dawn, where instead of having everything be brown and gray like Mad Max, yeah. you have this explosion of like anything that's color everybody wants it because that's the only color you get to see is what you find and and i like something that you said there it's this idea of it being the heart and soul and having this yeah you can feel yes that that movie had something special they didn't pull it off right yeah but it had something to start with which actually takes us kind of to the next era that we're talking about era number three I make this look good. Where we take the excitement of the the nineties and the things they tried to do and we turn it into something that's actually good. We don't get to talk about the, the mm. Phantom. Uh, <laughs> uh, no. Oh, no, so skip the Phantom. On. Wow. And I so, didn't know that it started out with you. No, no, but this is this, but this is this is still the grim and gritty. This is the this yeah. is the this is the right. crow influence. This is the yeah. dark, serious yep. brooding. Yeah. yeah, because they can't make bright spandex look good yet. No, no. yeah, we're still we're still in the the black leather phase, and we yeah. will be for for probably the next you know, mm-hmm. next number of years. Yeah, probably until X Men. Yeah, X Men are still in the yeah. black leather. Mm-hmm. Yeah, like yeah. they don't even do like a full costume for for a while. It's like the that. yellow X, right? And that's yeah. it. Yeah, right. right. Subtle, mm-hmm. subtle. You mm-hmm. know. But we go from Spawn. To, to movies like Steel. Oh, yeah. oh, oh Steel. dear. Yes. So Steel, I, I just just as a side thing of Steel, I know. Let's not talk about, about Steel. I'm not going to spend a lot of time on it. But I just, I love the fact that they they decided to make a spinoff of Superman, which is what Steel is. Steel was a character in the comics that was in, was a guy who was inspired John Henry Irons, for those of you who are paying attention. Um, he, uh, he was so inspired by Superman, he made a super suit and became Steel. So they decided to make a Steel movie starring Shaq. Which, you know, sure, box office gold, because Kazam. Um, and strip it of all connection to Superman. Like, they, he's just a guy who puts on a suit. There's no mention of Superman at all. He's just like, he's basically an Iron Man before Iron Man, I guess. Yeah. And it's awful. <laughs> and we go from that to something like Men in Black. Yeah, I feel like I'm dominating now because this mm-hmm. is mine as well. <laughs> so I'll, I'll make it brief. Yeah, I, I, this is, this is tough because it's hard. So Men in Black is, yeah, well, the, the, it's, it's easy to be brief on it because it's just a perfect movie. It's like so there's, it, uh-huh. I love Men in Black so much and just, I watched it again even with a critical eye and it's just brilliant. Like everything, this is, this is the weird um, uh, alchemy of, of Hollywood. Everyone coming into this movie are at their peak. Mm-hmm. Like you have, like Tommy Lee Jones is right off of, of The Fugitive, and Will Smith is right off of Independence Day, and Barry Sonnenfeld is right off of the Addams Family movies. Uh, and you get, uh, uh, like, you have Ed Solomon, who had created uh, Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure. You have Bo Welch, who had just worked with Danny Elfman on all of his stuff. Uh, sorry, Barry Welch and Danny Elfman, who had just worked with Tim Burton on all of his stuff. Like, and Rick Baker, who is like a, a, a special effects legend. All of them are at the peak of their talents, and they all come together. This and it and Steven Spielberg shepherds the whole thing. Yep. Oh my God! It's, so it's, it's it, this is the Avengers of movies. Like these are and, and everybody is coming in at the absolute peak, and they and instead of it completely imploding, it creates a fantastic movie. Now behind the scenes, apparently it was a mess. Like they were running around everywhere, and the scripts changed dramatically, and and they reshot. They they actually re 
end up almost reshooting the movie in editing. They, they eliminated an entire alien race. They they changed dialogue. Uh, they they did all the stuff. Negative. But it still works. Like all of it works. Everybody is is funny and interesting. It, the world is believable. There is real heart and real emotions. And I'll just do one of my favorite scenes in this as a writer uh, is there's a that that it, it, that lit up my brain is that. There's a scene where um, they're at the farmhouse where you hear an argument going on between uh, the husband and his wife uh, just about how terrible everything is. And it's, it's all done in one shot and you see a light start in the sky come down and it turns out to be an alien ship. And so he's complaining about everything that's going on saying like, the only thing that works around here is my truck as the alien ship smashes into his truck and destroys it. And he steps out. Now, anyone who is a writer, they, at that point, would, the, the typical thing would be, oh, I can't believe, oh, no, why would it? Like this huge reaction. But instead, he walks out, opens the door, looks at the destroyed truck and goes, figures. Mm-hmm. It's just like this, oh, my God. Like, like, I remember in the theater, just like it lighting up my brain, like, oh, we're not, we're going a whole different direction. Like, you never know where this movie is going to go because it, it has a completely different rhythm to anything else. And it sounds like they finally got to a point where they actually elevated the source material. They understood it's better than their the comic. audience mm-hmm. and are willing, as a studio, to meet the audience where they are because at the same time we have something like that, we also have movies like Late. Which yeah, is first great Marvel yeah. action. Dark yeah, right. And, and completely different. Yeah, it's and, its and, own thing. It's its own movie. And it's honoring okay. its source material. Yeah. And then comedy movies like Mystery Men. Yeah, the team. We finally have a team. Oh, my God. I loved this movie when it came out in 1999. Like, I was all about Ben Stiller, Hank Azaria, oh, Janine Garofalo. Eddie Izzard is in this movie. Uh, Greg Kinnear. Like, William H. Macy. The Blue Roger. Paul Rubens. Just, like, on paper, it looks so good. And I watched this movie, and it's garbage. <laughs> it is straight trash. There's nothing wow. good about this movie. Oh, wow. Passing over Frankenstein. It is so bad. Like it's so sexist and like casually racist, and the jokes are so homophobic, and it's it's so bad. But then, just a year later, we've got X Men, which I feel like, in my mind, is the movie that kind of broke. The, you know, we're talking about like comic book movies and superhero movies, but I feel like X Men was the first one to kind of dispel the curse of the superhero movie. Yeah. Well, yeah, and it really and was. Like, Mystery Man is supposed to be a spoof of superhero movies that don't even actually exist yet. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. That was. It's a, like the, it's spoofing the, the Avengers time. before there is an Avengers. Yeah. It's spoofing the X Men before there is an X Men. Yeah, it made sense as a comic because. There were plenty of right. comics with teams, Movie-wise. but by this point, nobody had seen a team mm-hmm. in a comic that really was a successful film. And so you're you're getting this kind of comedy spoof of these team, you know, superheroes, but nobody was like nobody really connected that with anything. Yeah. yeah. But yeah, then X Men comes out, and I mean, it really does kind of uh, change the face of things because now you've got a team. They're building this whole team. It's about these these mutants coming together and and creating these uh, these teams and 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 battling. And it it it's something that really kind of uh, they did right. Brian Singer, yeah, they're wearing their superpowers like on their sleeves. Like, yeah, exactly. everyone was like overtly superhero. Yeah. Exactly. That's their one thing that they do, and they do it well. And uh, plus, it had a message, and I think that's something that Brian Singer obviously gravitated to. But also, I think that is something that helps X Men resonate, and I think it helped uh, resonate with audiences too. That whole idea of of you know you know 
people being prejudiced because you ha- you're, there's something different about you, but there, it doesn't mean that you are different. And the way that that message played out in the film, I think it made it a very strong film. It was huge at the box office, and that really is something that kind of uh, grew this film to be a huge thing and allowed for us to kind of get to the place where we are now, where you have things like the Marvel Cinematic Universe, you have the the DC Universe, all these different universes that people are creating because people, you know, took a couple decades to figure it all out. And and we even have some unique um, uh, universes, things like Unbreakable, which didn't Mm -hmm. necessarily know it was going to be a universe, or we didn't know it was going to be a universe when it first came out. That was, that was a stealth comic. Nor was movie. it based on anything. Yeah, they didn't, it, was, they, it was almost like the first meta yeah. kind of look yeah, at nobody, comics. Yeah, like he did not tell anybody. Like nobody knew going in what it was uh, that it was going to be a comic book movie. And, and as you've already mentioned, you do have things like X Men that came out around the same period of time. It's kind of funny to think about all these movies that came out right around the yeah. same period of time, and like the year after the Matrix. I mean, like at different times. So, is there any more you wanted to say about X Men? We, we do have a couple minutes here, if you'd like. Uh, you know, I, I mean, it was just another, like Batman, like Superman, this was another huge hit at the box office. And I think it speaks to the fact that this is what people were ready for. They were ready for this transition. And, I mean, it was a huge opening weekend. It was the highest grossing opening weekend for a superhero film beating Batman forever. Um, the sixth biggest opening of all time. I and mean, it was just a big film. And, obviously, it allowed Brian Singer, um, another persona non grata these days, yeah. to uh, continue making more of these and to tell more of these stories before uh, and, and other the power of X-Men, too, is casting. Like, Yo, like yeah. I mean, like, the, most of the people going into this were, I mean, we had Patrick Stewart, who we loved, but no one knew who Ian McKellen was. This well, was and, before Lord of the Rings. And the big the big surprise with that one was Hugh Jackman yes, coming in as yeah, Wolverine exactly. because but, it originally was Doug Ray Scott yeah. who was supposed to oh, be Wolverine, but he um, he had to back out because he got injured on the set of Mission, uh, Mission Impossible, Impossible 2, 2, and so he couldn't do it. From and mo- then motorcycles. They were already, yeah, <laughs> jumping around John motorcycle Wu. stunts. They were Curses already Wu. in production on X-Men, and they were kind of panicking, and Brian Singer wanted Russell Crowe to be in it, and he didn't think that he was the right choice, but he said, hey, I've got this buddy down under, uh, Hugh Jackman, uh, why don't you give him a try? And Hugh Jackman, uh, he didn't have as much experience, but he read for the part, and he was perfect. And perfect. now, like, what? I can't yeah. even imagine them doing this movie without yeah. him, and yeah. I think he, I mean, I, I mean, you mentioned casting, yeah. that, I think, is another thing that makes all of these, like, the ones that succeed, they find the right people to be a part of it and yes. make the team. I mean, even in universes mm-hmm. like Harry Potter, it's because they cast it right, yeah. yeah. You really end up being yeah. able to create that yeah. universe. X Men and X Two are like star making machines. Like Absolutely. everybody in that that group has gone on to do amazing stuff, and are almost all of them are still working. Mm-hmm. Yeah, right. And then even with like the the X Men origin stuff, like with that cast yeah. has just exploded. Jennifer Lawrence, yeah, you know, oh, just yeah. a small part in that, yeah. and now they have to base every movie around her. <laughs> Uh, J Law, yes, yes, yeah. yeah. So, yeah you can, and you can see from X Men, then we we have the the building blocks that mm-hmm. they will use to make the MCU, yeah, yep. and all the stuff that comes after, which is the precursor to all the things that we know and love. So, uh, I, I believe that takes us to the end today. So, thank you all for your time today, and uh, uh, thank you all for hanging out with us for an hour. We loved having you today. Real quick, one last thing. If you like what we're talking about, if you liked hearing these people, they do have podcasts. They run on a regular basis. You've got the Marvel Movie Minute taking on the films of the Marvel Cinematic Universe one minute at a time, now playing Iron Man. Yeah, that's right. We're uh, cranking through the Marvel movies, and next up we'll be talking about The Incredible Hulk one minute at a time. Awesome. We also have the Most Excellent 80s Movies, or Most Excellent 80s Movies podcast. 
It's a podcast where filmmaker Nathan Blackwell of Squishy Studios and a comedian, Chrissy Lentz of National Comedy Theater, take a hilarious look at the 80s movies we love, hate, hate to love, and love to hate, with 2018 eyes and probably a significant haze of nostalgia. Word. <laughs> well said. And Road to Infinity. In January of 2018, the members of Legible Scroll came up with a mad plan, watch a Marvel movie a week leading up to Infinity War, and put out a podcast about each one. And we did it. But little did we know, the story wouldn't be completed until Endgame. Or after. Yeah. So thank you to uh, Phoenix Fan Fusion for letting us do our panel together. That was very cool of them. This was a lot of fun. So and thank you guys for coming out and doing this. I like this crossover. This was a blast. Yeah, this was Yay. fun. I was like, I could, I could keep going. I could talk for an hour about that stuff. <laughs> Specifically about Tank Girl. I yeah, right? could talk, talk a lot about Tank Girl. <laughs> I, I, I can talk about the room long before that. So <laughs> we'll do the, the, our post show will be talking about Judge Dredd because I have a lot of feelings about that. Oh dear. <laughs> Great. So Thanks, everyone. Thanks. Just Judge Dredd. Yeah. 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 Tank Girl. It'll be first half Judge Dredd, second yep. half Tank Girl. Yeah, you go. <laughs> All right. Thank you all for listening. All right. Thanks, guys.